0: Hello and welcome to episode 81 of Canberra Conversations with your host, Colin Campbell. And today's conversation, we are talking about being champion-minded and coaching elite performers. To do so, we are joined for our conversation by Alistair McCall. Alistair is an author, a speaker, mindset, and performance coach. In this episode, expect to learn about Alistair's sporting background growing up in South Africa and the role that family and environment can play on sporting development. Within the conversation, Alistair shares how he transferred into the coaching world from his athletic pursuits and then ended up coaching both in terms of sports performance, but also in mindset for individuals, teams, and coaches. I asked him about the differences between coaching and team sports versus individuals, how Alistair approaches coaching teams that he has a personal affiliation and support for, and much, much more. This conversation is incredibly interesting when it comes to understanding the increases of getting the maximum out of the people that you interact with from a coaching perspective and it's certainly got principles that we can apply in our everyday lives. The last area of the podcast we dive into some of the elements of being champion minded which we can apply for athletes as well as in the business world. Today's podcast is supported by Factory Weights. Factory weights produce high quality fitness and gym equipment for you to use either at home, in a PT studio, or wherever you're choosing to do your training, with a range of kettlebells, dumbbells, barbells, plates, resistance bands, and much, much more. We know that factory weights are light on price, but heavy on quality, and you can get involved using the link in the show notes to visit factoryweights.co.uk and use the code CALL10 for 10% off at checkout. Without any further ado, let's get into this one with Alastair McCaw. And I may or may not sneak in a couple of Rangers related questions, so please excuse me if you're not a Rangers fan. Let's go. and welcome back to another episode of cambrough conversations today's conversation we are talking about how to become champion minded to do so we are joined by author speaker mindset and performance coach alistair mccall alistair thanks for joining me
1: you're welcome good to be here colin
0: thanks alistair and uh an eclectic accent you've got and i think that probably leads me into my first question about where you've come from where you've been over the years and bringing the listeners up to speed on what is quite an interesting background
1: yeah, sure. Well, I was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, uh, many years ago, uh, probably during the most turbulent times there in, in the '70s. Um, we emigrated to South Africa in '81. I was probably six or seven years old, so I didn't really remember that much. Um, and I grew up in South Africa. I was educated in South Africa. Um, obviously, a very sports-minded nation as well. You play a lot of sports at school. I played seven, eight sports in school. Um, rugby, soccer, cricket, tennis, cross-country, track and field—you you name it. You know, um, the, the the schools in South Africa are really well equipped with with sports facilities. You know, they're just like massive academies. Um, so I was very very fortunate there. Very sporty family. Uh, my brothers, you know, I'm I'm the youngest, so uh, always playing sports in the in the backyard and in the, in the garden, for example. You know, getting getting uh, toughened up by my brothers, you know, you couldn't cry and stuff like that. So I think that's where it all all started for me. Um, You know, my first, one of my first loves was tennis, took that up. Unfortunately, just, it just became too expensive to to sustain, you know, um, four boys, um, you know, just rackets, strings, shoes, you know, I'd go through shoes every like week and a half, two weeks. It was just too expensive. So at 14, 15, I took up running because I was pretty good at it in school as well. Um, that came to me, I wouldn't say easily, but I, I'd love to, i love to run. i love to, to, to train. I became the under 16 national champion in, on the 5k on the road. Uh, I mean, when I was 16, I ran, I think a, f- a 15, 1509 for, for 5k. So I had speed back mm-hmm. at that age. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when I try and break 20 now, it's, uh, I, I just can't believe I used to run five minutes quicker for, for, for five kilometers. Um, that progressed into into duathlon, which is um, you know uh, triathlon without the swimming. I, I wasn't a good swimmer, and I had a fairly decent career there as well. I, I competed in five world championships. I was two times national champion. I raced for a few European clubs, and uh, so definitely, you know, looking back at it, um, sports was in my family. Uh, the facilities were all there in South Africa. You know, it was for free. And that progressed into, you know, sports opened up a lot of traveling for me to see the world. And that's always something I say to athletes is, you know, it's uh, what what a an what a opportunity it is to play sports and travel the world. And, um, and that's, yeah, that was the beginnings for me.
0: Yeah, I think one of the key things you mentioned there is about South Africa being such a multi-sport upbringing for you. Seven or eight sports, I think you said you were playing with, uh, at school age, that differs greatly to... Most of the listeners and myself who, who live in the UK and Scotland where, I mean, mm. you'll probably have a, a, you'll have a PE department where you would do a number of different sports during your class time. But ultimately, if you want to do extracurricular sports at a level, it'd be fairly limited. Rugby, football, maybe a push hockey, depending on what school you were at in the in, in, in the public system or the private system. So for you to be immersed in so many at such a young age, how do you think that, led to you perhaps being quite a, a strong athlete?
1: I think just the, you know, I I've been reading a book. I think it's called um, I've got it actually here right now. It's called the best. I've just finished that book and it, I mean, it's nothing new that I know. I know that sounds very uh um arrogant, but um you know once you start reading, I read 30 to 40 books a year or so, you know, you start accumulating the same type of topics. But you know, studies show that usually the youngest kid in the family is usually the best athlete because, um, you know, and they have siblings as well, because, you know, it's a good chance your brother or sister played a sport. Um, my, my situation, my brothers all did. They're all older than me. You know, the, your, your biggest goal as a kid is to beat your brother in, in whatever sport it is. So I had to earn that, right? So, you know, it's, I was just looking at that from a scientific point of view. It's usually the youngest sibling in the family that, that goes on to be the best, not always, um in a way that that the eldest was used as a guinea pig uh, or you know the parents made all the mistakes on the on the oldest one and, and improved it for the for the next one along so i think that was an advantage to me um you know always someone to play sports with in in the backyard at home my brothers um you know you'd finish school at one o'clock in South Africa and, and you'd, you'd stay there till, till sundown at six, 7 PM, just playing a load of a, a pile of sports. And like I said, they were for free and all the, all the facilities were free and all the equipment was passed on to you. So we were given a massive, massive advantage. Um, of course, I didn't know what it was like in the rest of the world. You know, you just think when you're young, that it's normal. And then I realized it's not normal um, for all the things we've got. I mean, I our, our, our school, which was just a public school, I didn't go to any fancy private school or anything like that. We had an Olympic pool. We had uh, four hockey fields, uh, three rugby fields. I mean, um, sixteen tennis courts. That's a public school.
0: Yeah, heavily resourced I, and invested in from a young. That's age. what I
1: say. It's like a, it's like a sports academy um, that that we would go to, and that was normal. I don't know how it is now. I mean, it's I, I haven't been you know, I've only been back to South Africa two or three times since 2000, but, um, but that's how it was back in the eighties, nineties.
0: Yeah. In- incredible. And it's interesting. You make that point about the younger sibling to drive them on. I've got a very close relationship with my younger brother. And I certainly know that he started golf at a younger age because I was at the golf club. So it was okay for him to come along. So he was hitting balls at eight rather than 10 or 12. So automatically he was developing at a faster rate. The same for rugby, the same for the gym as well. When we both started lifting weights, he could come along because I was over 16. And as long as I was with him, he could come along and 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 follow our sessions. So that's a funny point that you raised, and certainly one that anecdotally uh strikes yeah. home, strikes home, strikes home with me. So- yeah, I mean,
1: if I if I ask, if I ask, sorry, Colin, when I when I ask like the athletes I've worked with, you know, I'm very curious about their background as well. And you know, for example, uh the grinham sisters, Natalie and Rachel, they were <clears throat> they were number one and two in the world in squash about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, I think Rachel still plays. They're they're phenomenal. And uh they're Australian Commonwealth gold medalists, both of them. Um but you know, I would ask you know, you know, Natalie and Rachel, who I worked with Natalie. Um, you know how it started for them and they would say yeah just as kids my parents played squash we'd hang around the squash court all day when they'd go off the court to have a drink we'd sneak on and, and, and hit balls against the wall and it's it's you know so it's very important environment the environment you're in is is key um, and obviously as a kid you don't really choose your environment where you're born or where you live or what what facilities are there you know you look at the andy murray and jamie they grew up next door to a tennis club Um, So you'll usually find that athletes have come from an environment where um, parents played or or siblings did, or they were next to a facility.
0: Yeah, that ease of access and environment playing a massive role um, at a very young age.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, they talk about the 10,000 hour rule, but good gosh, I probably piled up 10,000 hours of sports before I was 10. So, you know, they talk about this 10,000 hours of, of, of training and so on and so forth. But you know, if you have to count up all the hours that were not structured training or with a coach or with a team, probably double that—that the, the time you would spend in the backyard playing cricket and, and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And within your own athletic career, this tennis was the focus, and it became running. Tennis is an affordability piece. Is that something that was a was a challenge in South Africa? I know it's definitely still an expensive sport in the in the UK. I think Andy Murray would have received a lot of support from the LTA and maybe on scholarships to I think Spain or something like that Andy would have gone to. But it certainly seems that that's a, a challenging sport versus running where really your, your only handicap is time, I suppose.
1: Yeah, for a, a game like, a sport like tennis, I, I hardly know of any players that came from a poor background who've made it to the top. Um, it is a privileged sport. Um, you know, Andy, obviously, Andy and Jamie, you know, Judy, who I know well, um we actually had dinner at the cromlicks last time i was in scotland which was last february um you know she was a coach and she was involved with tennis scotland so you know there there was a a background as well uh that, that that they had facilities and they had access to to these things of course you can't take away andy and jamie's passion because they're still playing today and and um you know so you know, we talk about, oh, you had the facilities, you had all the opportunities, but you've got to have passion. You've got to have, you know, you've got to love it if, if, if you're going to succeed at it. You know, you can't, you know, push someone to do something they don't, they don't want to do. But, yes, um, a sport like tennis and golf is very, very rare. You'll find someone coming from a, a poor background.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. One of the best golfers I played with as a, as a junior had – some funding from the Scottish Golf Union for coaching and for clubs etc but the biggest challenge was for him to get from his house to the different courses and the competitions because he would need his his mum to run him around and stuff like that so it isn't even just the paying for the tuition or paying for the equipment it's actually the the travel and the the expense of of, of that to us it's interesting that you that you raised those points so this sports career viewers yours you're, you're pushing along with the athletics you, you're getting a lot of travel you get to see the world which is obviously a, a massive thing for you how do you then segue into coaching how does the pursuit of your athletic excellence come to an end
1: yeah well I, I started doing jobs at a very young age I mean newspaper routes at 10 years old and flipping burgers at, at a, a takeout at 14 and working in I did multiple jobs. Uh, I was a mascot for a soft drinks company, <laughs> all these things. So uh, a waiter in a restaurant. So I, from a young age, I was working to, to get my pocket money and pay for my sports. Like I said, we didn't have money in the family just to pay for, for everybody's um, sports and stuff. Um, I, I joined, did I join? No, I started. I started working in a gym cleaning the, the restrooms and, and vacuuming the floors and stuff late at night to, uh, to, to be able to train there for free. So that was a bit of a, a deal, a, a bargain. Um, so I could get stronger for my sport. Uh, then I became a fitness instructor because it was flexible hours. I could work half day and then train the rest of the, half, the, the rest of the day. Then that progressed into personal training where um you know all this time i was competing but you know it's a a sport that doesn't make you a lot of money even if you are one of the best in the world you're still not breaking even um, with traveling and so on injuries um so yeah working in the that's how i got into really the sports industry personal training was uh to supplement my my uh professional sports side i enjoyed it um i progressed to work with a lot of top South African sports stars and celebrities and so on. And then in 2000, I decided to move to the Netherlands. And I worked for the Dutch Cricket Federation when they were preparing for the World Cup and then went to the Dutch Tennis Federation for a short period and, um, and then worked with a whole lot of great squash players and athletes in Amsterdam for a few years. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a little bit of my path. At that
0: point, was it purely the physical side of things that you were helping with because you were coming from that personal training background? Were you supporting them, what, their strength and conditioning?
1: Yeah, it was. But I've I've always been into the mindset and and motivation and positivity and so on and so forth. So that was a massive part of it. Um, You know, I I was on a call to Croatia yesterday and, you know, talking to, to a lot of trainers. And I said, you know, people don't come to you for your exercises. They come to you for your energy. And... You know, that people have a choice of which trainers or coaches or whatever they want to go to. They'll go to the ones that make them feel good. The ones that, you know, that good old saying, um, you know, it's, you won't remember what people say, but you'll remember how they made you feel. And that's a massive thing in, in, in coaching and leadership and, in, you know, whatever it is, is that it's your energy you bring to people. It's not necessarily, yes, you've got to have skills. You've got to have confidence. Of course, that's the entry ticket. But definitely your attitude and your energy is, is a massive reason why people come to you.
0: Yeah, certainly. I think that's evident in, in business and in sport and coaching in every area. People buy from people, people relate to people and they, they're they going to respond much, much better based, based, based on that. And you're going down this path, you are pursuing coaching with these top level teams, these athletes in South Africa and then in, in multiple different sports as well, which I think is an interesting point that I'd love to understand more about when it comes to coaching, maybe cricketers versus a squash player, what were some of the main differences in that early part of your career where you're really cutting your teeth at the kind of top level coaching?
1: Um, I just had a really, a really thirst and hunger to learn and, and understand more. And, and I'd like to experiment of taking certain things from one sport and trying it in another in terms of movements or, you know, things, things like that. So I was, I was very experimental um always learning always reading from a young age you know I have this photo of of when I was like six or seven I'm in my dungarees and uh and I'm reading reading a book and and I think it's just from a very young age I don't know maybe we couldn't afford a tv I don't know but we just had a lot of books and so for me it was always learning and um I just love different sports you know I, I never wanted to specialize in one obviously tennis I I was able to work with a lot of great players and top 10 in the world and so on. Um, But, you know, the the transfer of like squash to tennis and the certain movements and certain patterns were very similar as well. So, yeah, I I think, I think that's what maybe made me successful as a, as a sports performance coach in my previous career was people enjoyed working with me because of, I, I think my energy. And also because I was very curious I was very creative, you know, they, they, they were, just weren't getting the same stuff all the time. They knew I was always investing in myself and learning. And this is a message I pass on to trainers and people today is keep investing in yourself. Keep learning. Um, you know, your clients will have no problem if you're away for a weekend, a month, because you're investing in yourself and, you know, you're learning, you know, they'll, they'll realize that you're, you're making yourself better so you can make them better.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. There's that whole famous phrase that sometimes it's better to take a break from trying to chop down the tree to sharpen the axe rather than just blindly following on and, and, and chopping away, whereas if you take that time to sharpen up your skills, improve your skills, and likewise, if you're coaching across multiple sports and multiple modalities, your ability and curiosity, Alistair, to ask questions and learn about it would get a far better result from the athlete rather than you maybe having one particular bias to... All my athletes will do this program, regardless of whether it's a, a hip hinge dominant sport or whether it's one that's more upper body focused. Whatever the whatever the the style of training would, would would need to be. So I find that very very interesting. That your curiosity's kind of paid off across that. And I guess athletes respect the fact that you're not maybe telling them that you know everything about their particular sport.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say I was like that in in the early stages of my of my career. You know, when you're in your twenties, you think you do know it all. And you're actually afraid to ask because then, you know, you might be seen as incompetent, but the older, older I got, the more I involved the athlete in decision-making and asking them what they thought. And I think if I can pass on some advice, if there's trainers out there or coaches is really include your, your athlete, include them in the dialogue, in the decision-making, don't be the one that's just, you know, dishing out orders and, you know, get their opinion. A lot of the times they can come back with something that, that can give you food for thought and change your mind about something. Um, you know, when you involve them as part of the process and part of the decision-making, they take more ownership of, of that. So, you know, I think that's something that I learned as I went along is don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask the athlete what they think or, you know, athletes, a lot of athletes can do a lot of things better than we can as coaches in terms of because they've seen a lot of, Uh, things as well from previous coaches and so on we need to remember that that they do have a data bank of, of information as well so you know that's important to know
0: yeah absolutely respect their knowledge and their experience and combine it with yours across multiple different sports and you can you can achieve a lot with them given that you coached across for a sports performance perspective anyway across both individual and team sports what was the the difference that you would see in terms of your coaching? How would you have to mix up for say an individual versus if you were coaching a, a team of athletes or a team of sports people?
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, working with an individual is, has its pros and cons. You know, you can get sick of each other. If you're, if you're traveling or full-time with each other, it's like any other relationship. Um, but you know, it's easier to connect and, and, and know a team on the other hand is a, a group of individuals that have come together. So teams take longer to, to form relationships and trust with individuals. Um, you know, you know, I'm not going to say you're going to be liked by everybody, so you've got to get over that hurdle, but you've definitely got to learn how to adapt and to build relationships with the individuals within the team. Um, yeah, you know, that, that's, that's critical as well if you're going to earn the trust of the team. So yeah, that, that's, that, that would, that's the, the biggest difference. I'd say it takes longer with the team, you know, because obviously if you're working with an individual, you you'll have dinner with them and you'll travel with them possibly. And, you know, you're at the tournament and practice with them and so on and so forth. So you're spending a lot of time together um, with a team. It's different. You're, you're only probably spending time with them when there's team practices and, and so on, unless you do travel with, with the team. So, yeah, it's, it takes more time in, in a team environment.
0: Yeah. What are some of the strategies that you would use with a, a team rather than the individual? You mentioned they're going for dinner with individuals and getting that closer bond. How would you try and replicate that connection and
1: trust with a, a team? To get trust, you've got to give trust. So, you know, you've got to show you're putting your trust in the team members before you even know them. Um, you know, why, why should they trust you if you, you're not showing your trust in them, first of all. So that's, I think that's one of the most important things to start with is that I think also vulnerability is a huge one is that they might not know you, but the more you can share about yourself and, and your shortcomings and your, um, things in life as well, that they get to know that you're a human being, that you make mistakes too, that you're not just all about ego. Um, I think you become more approachable as that type of person. Um, you know, people are more inspired by our ability to overcome imperfections than, than our perfections and standing up there and saying, look what I did and, you know, all that, you know, people aren't really, you know, they might be impressed, but, you know, people are inspired by the human behind you. So I think the human connection is very important, um, working with, with a team that, that you share about yourself and of course, that you give them trust first if you want the trust back.
0: I find that an incredibly interesting point you raised about vulnerability, Aster, because like you say, you could always hold yourself up as this expert, particularly given your experience level now, you could hold yourself up as the man that has all the answers. But then you, the, some of the team members might not respond well to you because they maybe feel like they're being lectured. And if there's one thing that I know when it comes to conversation skills and networking in, in business and in life, just lecturing and speaking at somebody never ever registers It's one of the few things that people come away with like a negative dopamine response from a conversation where they feel that they've been talked at the whole time and I certainly can understand that your ability to maybe share some imperfections share some things that you're not perfect at and things that you're working on yourself would enable me to connect much better with whoever was teaching me or coaching me
1: yeah absolutely i also think if i can add in there sense of humor is very important as well you know if you think back to the coaches that you enjoyed in your life or, or teachers they're usually people that had a sense of humor Yeah, you, know, you have a laugh and i think that's you know that's 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 a, a another area where people enjoy you you know um look if, if you're walking into a big club they know you have the skills because again, the skills and competence are the entry ticket to these places. So they're not questioning so much your skills and your your, your competence. They're questioning more your character. They're questioning more your your trust factor. That's what they're. That's what they're, you know. Why should I trust? Why should I trust you, even though you have a nice resume and you worked with a big club before, whatever it may be? So those those take time. But yeah, um, a sense of humor is very, very underrated in, in coaching and leadership. You know, we enjoy around, we, we enjoy to be around fun people. Um, we enjoy to have a laugh. Obviously, you've got to be very careful what your sense of humor is like. Um, you know, I'm, I'm almost finished my fifth book, which is on leadership and coaching. And I know you'll, you would enjoy this book as well, Colin on you know a lot of us know how to coach we know the x's and o's we know how to put a program together but do we know how to lead people so there's a lot of great coaches out there but not so much great leaders and there's a big difference being a coach doesn't automatically make you a leader so you know i um there's a part in that book about sense of humor you know lead with humor and we've got to be careful of the type of humor we use um You know, I know you guys in the UK. There like to use the word banter, but banter can become it can it can step over the line. Billy having having a laugh at the expense of somebody else, especially in a team environment. You know, something that can be personal. Uh, Sarcasm is also not a form of sense of humor. It's probably the lowest form of sense of humor. Um, If you if you know that person or you know, then it's different. You know, sarcasm is you know is okay, but Generally, um, you know, you've got to be careful of, of, of being too sarcastic, especially working with females, with girls. If, if you're sarcastic, they don't take it as well as, as, as uh, the males do. So, you know, that's another area we could spend a lot of time talking about is the difference between coaching male and females. Um, you know, so
0: what are some of those other differences then in terms of maybe their sense of humor versus a, a male's is is different. What are some of the other key areas that you've noticed, Alistair?
1: Yeah, you know, obviously, you know, you've got to understand that the, the female um, you know, their cycle as well of what they're experiencing that week. Um they're maybe not going to be as 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 um you know, maybe might be a bit more fatigued. Um you know so you've got to take all these elements into account. Um females Prefer to be praised in, in in person than in a group, for example. Guys like to be praised in a group because we like to feel good that's, about ourselves. That's
0: the ego there, Alistair, isn't it? That's the ego. Exactly,
1: exactly, exactly. Uh, girls, on the other hand, rather prefer that you tell them instead of tell the whole the whole group, for example. So those are some examples. And talking about ego, um, I had you know Martin Boucher on on the podcast about two weeks ago on Champion Minded, talking about his new book coming out um, on ego. So just for your listeners there, I don't know when this is coming out and the book actually hasn't come out yet, but um, it's called Eagles, E-G-O-A-L-S, Eagles. And, um, you know, Martin has worked with Zlatan and and Cavani and, you know, he's been at Paris Saint-Germain for six years and... He's got some fantastic stories in there. They, they sent me a PDF copy of it. I contributed some to the book as well of my experiences and ego in the sports industry, uh, not just athletes, coaches. Where, um, and this is something I do is I go into teams uh, as a leadership consultant and, and culture consultant and work with coaches on because there's a lot of ego there. The bigger the club, the bigger the ego.
0: Yeah, you mentioned PSG there. I know that's a club that you've done some work with before was it a club that had problems with ego?
1: Every club has problems with ego. It's a human, it's a human thing. Even at uh, grassroots level, at your local club down the road, there's egos there. Um, you know, people's, you know, especially in, in coaching, where there might be a difference of opinion in terms of what your team is going to be for Saturday or your strategy. And then, you know, you have a clash with your assistant because they think it should be this way. Um, you know those those are egos working as well so yeah it's 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 a really good book it's really really timely as well it's a book that you know martin says as well he wish he had 20 years ago
0: yeah and i can imagine that that ego links into an ability to use humor as well because you maybe find that certain people if their ego is inflated that they would struggle to have i know we spoke about banter being a sometimes being a, a risky area but jokes back and forth with one another because the ego would maybe the kind of biggest ego in the room would maybe say that no humor could come back their way and I you triggered the thought in my head Alistair where you were speaking about coaches I enjoyed when I was younger a lot of them were a little bit self-depreciating particularly when they were coaching really good players who were maybe more talented at that age than they'd ever been and their ability to kind of maybe joke about their ability to perform a skill that they were trying to teach you but ultimately trying to still reinforce the methodology and you could take them seriously because their vulnerability and all the flaws were there and they were making a, they were making fun of it, so to speak, but still from a credible space. Really yeah. seriously, it, it,
1: it just reminds me of, of, you know, a professional tennis player I was working with and I was with their coach and he was a former top 20 player in the world. I mean, he's beaten Federer, he's beaten Novak, he's beaten Andy. And he, he was ridiculously, talent i don't like the word talent because you got to work for talent but he's ridiculously skilled good hands could come up with incredible shots that other top players couldn't and he was trying to he was trying to first of all he you know he he told the player i'd like you to do this when when this particular ball comes and the player just couldn't do it and he was getting frustrated you know like why you know it's so easy you just do this you know and he'd, he'd show him But the player couldn't do this and i could see like frustration building up in both of them because the player felt a little bit embarrassed the coach thought i just can't understand why you you can't do this and you know i had to obviously um bide my time and know when the right time was to to step in and and chat to to the coach away from the player and just say you know look you had incredible talents and, and things that other players just couldn't do and he'd say, "Yeah, but he's a professional player, and he's in the top hundred in the world." And I said, "Yeah," and that's how how ridiculously good skills you had then as well. But you know, other players don't have those, and probably will never have those. So you know, we've got to we've got to understand what the athlete has and what they don't have.
0: I think that maybe links into why many very very talented football players don't always make the best managers because they can't quite understand why players can't perform at the level they played at. They maybe can't come up with those iconic moments or passes under pressure or shots under pressure that they maybe could in the same way that this tennis coach who had, like you say, supreme skills under pressure, but his, his athlete that he was coaching, albeit a top level athlete, didn't have that in their locker. Whereas many top footballers, even if you're coaching at the top clubs, may not replicate the kind of some of the managers that have come in and tried to pass that on
1: yeah no exactly um uh, you know we're, we're all we're all different we all come from a different skill set we all come from a different mentality we've all been coached differently um you know with different coaches throughout our development uh, phase so you know there's so many things that you have to take into consideration um you know especially working with with young athletes as well you know uh you got to take all these all these factors in, into consideration
0: from a, a selfish perspective, Alistair, I know we're both uh, big Rangers fans. I know that you did some work with them in the last 18 months and it's obviously been an incredible season for Rangers just finished there. What were some of the things that you focused on with that team who were clearly talented but perhaps mentally were lacking and they kind of fell away at the crucial time in two seasons in a row before finally getting over the line with Gerard?
1: Well, obviously, they've got an exceptional um, leader in, in, in Stephen. I mean, uh, you know, he was the captain of England. Obviously, he was the captain of Liverpool for a long time. He, you know, he's another great example of a quiet leader. You know, leader, you don't have to be the loudest or the most vocal. You know, I think a lot of the times coaches feel their captain and their team should be the most vocal or, you know, loudest. Not, not necessarily. You know, Stephen's leadership skills come down to his example, which is the most powerful form of leadership. And, um, you know, he does that very well. He's, like I said, he's not a man of many words. He's also got the right people around him, you know, Michael Beale and Gary McAllister and Jordan Milson. you know, he's, he's, that's what a great leader does as well, is they, they surround themselves with, with the best people as well. And people that uh, supplement the things that they maybe lack, for example, you know, it's finding someone similar to you is not always the best idea in leadership this is the advice I give to, to coaches is, you know, find an assistant coach or people around you that, that um, are better than you in, in certain areas as well. So yeah, that's, that's one thing. Um, you know, I've, I've not worked with the players at, at Rangers. I don't do that. I don't go in and work with players in, in these clubs. I work with the coaching team, the staff, the performance team. Um, so, you know, that's, and you see, you know, you see good clubs like Paris Saint-Germain and, and Glasgow Rangers have had success in the last two two to three years, be it Champions League or be it Europa or, or the, your, your premiership there, is that they invest. They invest in their people. They invest in their coaches. They bring people like myself in and, and to to work with the team, you know. So that's those are areas that the fans maybe don't see, but you see that these clubs that excel, like Liverpool and, and so on, they 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 resource a lot of outside help as well, uh, behind the scenes. And that's that's why they're world class.
0: Yeah, that that's that's very, very interesting. There's so many different directions I could go with that. But um you mentioned about Steve and Gerard building this team around them and as good leaders do, finding people who supplement areas that they're not at their strongest. And ability to bring those people together and build something that's really, really strong as a collective rather than just the front man. From a, an outsider's perspective, it looks like that's maybe one of the main differences between two people who were compared constantly throughout their playing career, but also now in their management career, Gerard and Lampard, who Lampard appears to very much be the face and everything else behind what he was doing at Derby and Chelsea, whereas Gerard, I think every Rangers fan knows, is very reliant on Michael Beale for tactics Gary McAllister for that knowledge of Scottish football and that Rangers culture, and then Tom uh, Jordan Milson for the fitness side of things. Tom Coulshaw, who's the kind of the set piece man, and there's an appreciation that it is a team, whereas with Lampard, you maybe just assume that he's a persona and a person in his own right.
1: Yeah, um, I think with I think with Lampard, you know, too soon also you know we know the board there as well that you know one bad season even half a bad season as Lampard had you're out so you know listen you can't blame him for taking the job I mean who's going to turn down you know the Chelsea manager position um so you can't blame him for that all of us would have done that in his shoes even if you feel you're ready or not yourself you know um but it was just too soon he hasn't gathered up enough experience i think he's going to be a fantastic coach i think he will be the england coach one day um he's good with people he's good with players i just think he needs more of the coaching skill set of learning to be a coach so and that takes years that takes years of experience even though he was a player i think he was also given the you know the the chelsea job because of of not his coaching background because of lampard chelsea and the legend that, he, that he's been at the club. So the fans loved it. It's the dream situation. You come back and coach your team. Gerard, Liverpool, maybe next. Who knows? Uh, but unfortunately, it just didn't work.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you raised that coaching thing. And I guess if Lampard could find assistants and coaches around him that would help bring that on in the medium term while he built up that experience, that would be fantastic. Given that you have an affiliation with Rangers and then most of the other things that you've dealt with have been purely professional how did you strike the balance between the two because obviously you there maybe be even more of a burning passion to make sure that that worked versus all your other areas where of course you wanted to go well but with Rangers obviously you were maybe even a bit more hyped up given that you were you were born in Belfast raised a Rangers supporter.
1: Yeah, I mean, and this might come as a surprise to Rangers supporters, but I don't mind Celtic either. I don't mind any of these clubs. I, I've never had a, a hate for any opposition. I'm a massive Liverpool supporter. I don't mind Manchester United at all. I just find some people just—it's sports, you know. I mean, they just take it too far. I—I I love Alex Ferguson. Um, you know, he's one of probably one of my top three favorite leaders. Um, so, and he was at our rival club if we can want to call that but you know brendan rogers at celtic did a a fantastic job celtic have had some great great players and success as well so you know honestly even if they knock my door and this sounds like a you know um bad thing i would i would help um i really just don't have a in in my line of work you can't take sides you know because i work with large universities here in america who i consult them but they're competing against each other on saturday um, so, you know, in my line of work, there's a lot of pr- privacy, you know, you're not, you know, you're not telling the next club what the previous one is doing and so on and so forth, you know, otherwise you'd, I'd be out of a job, you know, so your, your privacy is very important, um, you know, in, in this, in this job, but yeah, for sure. It was a, it was a great thrill to walk through the gates at, at Rangers and at the training ground. Um, because as a kid, I, I grew up watching, McCoist and and you know Goff and gas Gascoigne and so on at Rangers just such a legacy Michael uh, was it Michael Audrip or it was Brian, Michael Brian. Brian sorry um yeah just those those legends of the game as well so yeah a lot of history going back to Rangers and it was a great great joy to 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 do some work with them and you know behind me here I've got a nice signed Rangers shirt jersey um so yeah
0: yeah i think that professionalism piece is really refreshing and it gives reassurance to every company that you'll probably work for i know you would do some fortune 500 company work you do some university work as well so quite refreshing to hear that element of professionalism the the last big area that i'd love to dive into with alistair is around being champion minded that's one of your most well-known books it's the title of your podcast what are the key elements of champion minded that you think the kind of demographic of listeners that I've got who are young professionals wanting to excel in business, wanting to excel in their career, wanting to excel in fitness that they could maybe implement in their day-to-day life that you instill in athletes.
1: I think being champion-minded comes down to um, maximizing your potential. And what does that mean? Um, you know, we've all come from different backgrounds. Some of us have been more privileged than others and so on and so forth, but here we are today. You have a choice of where you're going to go from today. Um, I believe if you really want to make something happen, you can make it happen. You will find a way, um, you know, be it through people, through, you know, I've had to travel a lot. I've had to give up a lot of Christmases, birthdays, weddings, so on and so forth because of my career and because of my job. But that was a choice I made. I don't I don't like to use the word sacrifice because... Um, I I, I prefer to use the word choice it was my choice to be away from those events it's my choice my choice to be on the other side of the world you know staying in somebody's attic or garage you know slumming it out because of what I wanted to achieve you know um you know when I was competing I couldn't afford hotels and so on and so forth I'd be I'd be sleeping on people's couches and 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 doing all these things so but because I wanted it so badly so you know You can't give that to anybody, but that champion minded is about maximizing what you have, making things happen, um, getting up each day, having a plan to your day, being structured, uh, chasing your goals and um, and just maximizing everything you've got. We all have we we all can make those choices.
0: I've been asked a few times through Instagram, Alistair, what my biggest fear is, and I always come back to not attempting to maximize my potential. I don't. I have no idea what that potential might be in whatever area of life it is, whether it's fitness or or golf or or business development or or self development. If I don't work towards that, then I feel a little bit worried and a bit disappointed in what what I could potentially become. And that's why I really enjoyed diving into into some of your content. And I know you were speaking about one of the elements of champion minded being how we look, and that was one that stood out to me being quite a. Quite something that quite a lot of people maybe underestimate. What did you mean when it came to how I look it can lead to me being champion? Yeah.
1: no. yeah, exactly. This is something where you know people can misread it. Uh, look, human beings are very judgmental. When somebody walks through the door in seven seconds, you've you've built up this uh, thought system of do I trust them? Um, do they look confident? Are they, uh, you know, you can already just build up something within your head. You know, we're very judgmental without even being able to control it. It's the first thing we think, you know, um, uh, someone that's intimidating, that looks intimidating. You know, we fear, fear uh, you know, we, we can fear that, for example. So, you know, we're judging on their appearance, but you know, very important is to is to look professional in whatever job that you're doing. For example, dress for the occasion, you know, uh, look respectable. Uh, you know, it doesn't require money or wearing the best, the best clothes or whatever, but look, look professional, present yourself to the best you can. And, um, you know, like John Wooden of UCLA and all these famous coaches or, or from the yesterday, uh, Alex Ferguson as well, you know, the, the team would wear suits and, and blazers and so on and so forth when they'd go to, to, uh, uh, to travel, for example. So, yeah, that's where I'm coming from there is look professional um look the part because people are very judgmental in terms of how how you look and you might say well I don't care well then you're basically jeopardizing your own pathway to climbing the ladder so to say in your in your business I wouldn't hire someone that 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 doesn't present themselves well
0: yeah I I mean you're you're completely preaching to the converted here Alistair I I think that how we present ourselves is massively important and even how we hold ourselves in terms of body language as well because I know that plays a role in things that you've discussed exactly well because if you go in, you could, you could have a, you could have a nice, a nice, a nice shirt and trousers on. But if you're slouched over, then you diminish that impact of that as well. And you could have the nice shirt and the nice trousers on, but it might be untucked and unbuttoned and it might look unpresentable and straight away you've diminished that as well because you've lost that element of being tidy and well presented. It could be the most expensive designer shirt on the on the on, on the rack in the shop, but if you've not tucked it in it's not iron then you've you, you've you've lost some bonus points there
1: yeah if I, if I can give a little a little secret a little tip i do if i'm working with a club um or i'm working with a team and you know some of them will give you attire you know they'll give you shirts and and whatever um but if they don't it, let's just say it's a first visit i'll usually wear the same color shirt or tie of the team so there's a bit of a connection there because you could be sitting there Let's just say I, 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 you know, go to Rangers and I'm wearing a green tie and whatever. There's already like a, a un, unsaid psychological barrier there in terms of, you you know. So I always try and dress for the, the occasion of where I'm going. And I'm very mindful of that, you know, because, um, you know, it's just one of the things I, I believe, you know.
0: It's really, it's really powerful, isn't it, how perce- how a little bit of perception, a little bit of homework can make those around you feel more comfortable when you go into the into the area. I recently moved from working in the corporate insurance world where it was always shirts, ties, blue suit, black shoes, going out to clients and shaking hands and whatnot, to an area where I deal with, a lot with student accommodation managers, so people that manage big purpose-built blocks, uh, areas of flats, and if you turned up in a suit, you would be massively overdressed because you're sometimes going Mm -hmm. out to building sites where they're going to refurbish it so if I but equally I don't want to turn up in a pair of jeans and a pair of trainers because that's too disrespectful so striking the balance in being well presented but not necessarily being overdressed I think has been a been a big thing as well but I'll certainly take into account that kind of color scheme that's an interesting one Alistair I'll, uh, (laughs) I'll research what their what their brand colors are and that links into one of the things that you said as well around preparation with champion mindedness and that really really hit home with me because I'm at my most confident when I feel well prepared so for example to speak to somebody of of your ilk and with your experience I wanted to be aware of the things that you've achieved the things that you've done so that I can understand and ask you pertinent questions to get the most interesting insights from you how do you think athletes can prepare better for performance or even people
1: in my line of work prepare better for what we do? Yeah, um, good question. I mean, you know, I I've, I believe it's very important that you have structure to your day. You have a plan to your day. So, like every evening, the last thing I do in the office here is uh, look at my next day in terms of you know what I have what I have lined up, my schedule, and so on and so forth. There's time for exercise. There's time for the things that I need to do as well. So you know that that would be one area: is be organized, be prepared, uh, have structure to to your day uh you know free time read uh, about your industry bios whatever it may be there's so much information out there just just keep learning as much as you can those are the people that 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 get ahead is the ones with a wealth of information and and you know like i said these days we have so many resources so many resources you know um when i was in my early 20s there there wasn't internet and so on (laughs) so you just couldn't just go and find something pretty quickly or have access to like we do today people on on calls like this where you could just call someone that's been in the industry for 25 years and have a conversation with them or listen to them on a podcast today we can just listen to anybody at any time so you know today's easier and easier the the biggest challenge today is not the amount of information it's it's sifting through the right information or the or or gaining the right knowledge there's a lot of anybody can be an expert out there these days you know they brand themselves well they they maybe have good marketing they have a good video producer that puts their stuff together and we can be we can be fooled by that so it's very important that you look into the background of the person that you're learning from Uh, are they the real deal have they you know, worked in the trenches, have they done their bit? That's very important. Because like I said, today, people can easily brand themselves as an expert.
0: It's very, very true. And it's interesting, you say we are kind of we're drowning in information, but we need to be super selective of what we take in. And I know you're saying you're reading 3040 books a year, but you're probably being quite ruthless with the ones that you're choosing. And there's probably some that you read through Like you say, there'll be echoes of different themes that come through in each one. And there'll be ones where you think, right, okay, well, I've, I've maybe learned as much as I can from this book. I need to be reading something else or, so, or, or something different. And the last thing I would say when it comes to this, all this information, all this information is, is free. This knowledge is free, but our attention is probably the hardest thing, particularly when we've got so many distractions, Alistair, and we're thinking about being as prepared as possible and being ready for and knowledgeable at what we're going to do we often get distracted by things like social media or uh, whatever's on netflix or the television rather than investing in a little bit of preparation time which can often make us feel a bit more confident
1: yeah i mean yeah there's there's always been distraction i suppose and we have a choice if we you know have our phone in the hand when we're speaking to somebody or not um or on the table which is another one you know when i when i i'm very conscious of that as well if you know, I'll either have my phone on the seat next to me or face down. But you know, it's just think about when you're speaking to someone and their phone is on the table, it's face up and the thing flashes and they look at it and they, you know, you, you don't feel connected, you don't feel they're listening. Um, so, you know, I think that's just one area where you could, if you want to be more mindful, if you want to be more present, that's maybe an area you could start is, is develop the habit of um, you know, putting your fa- phone face down or putting it away when you're at dinner with somebody or in a meeting and not having it. Because basically what that person's saying to you is that my phone is more important than my conversation with you right now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've had meetings where the person has had a phone in front of them and, um, you know, it flashes every two minutes and they look and they're distracted and, and you just know they're not there, you know.
0: It really breaks our focus as well because these things are far more cleverly designed than our than our brains have evolved to keep up with the, the distraction and the dopamine and everything that we're, we're getting from them. And I'm a big fan of having my personal phone outside the room when I'm working 9 till 12 really just and I have like just an undisturbed three hour block where unless my, my mom or my brother or my dad or somebody phones me and it's an emergency, I'm not going to be going through to that room to check WhatsApp or Instagram or, or whatever else is going on in the world. And I guess the, the last area, and it kind of touches on a lot of that, is, is around communication. Alistair, how do you think we can communicate better to be more champion-minded?
1: Listen better. Um, you know, great coaches, great leaders are great listeners. So I think listening more, we learn more. You know, when we're talking, we're just we're just telling things we already know or think we know. But I think listening is the best form of communication. When you really deeply listen, like I said, what changed in my coaching was getting more of the athlete's opinion, listening to the athlete more than just telling him or her what to do. Uh, because I was, I was brought up like that. I was coached like that in school is, you know, they would just tell you what to do and you didn't question it. You did it these days. It's this generation is very different, different. You have to be in dialogue with them. So listening to the athlete, asking them what they think um, communicate clearly. You know, when I work with companies, the communication is probably the first thing we go into is how do we communicate here? What's our mediums, you know, WhatsApp, text, email, how do we email? How do you, you know, uh, little simple things like at the, you know, getting to the, to the, the subject, as soon as you can in an email, don't blab on about your weekend and so on and so forth. People don't have time to read, to read through that. Be very polite, get to the point. Uh, your last line should be, I would, I would appreciate a reply, uh, by the end of the day please if possible or by tomorrow um you know so get your point uh have a uh you know an action point there as well as that you know you need, because if you just write an email um you know talking about needing 15 15 books but you don't ask by when or how or whatever you know that person might go well, that's not important so I'll leave it. And there you are waiting and you're checking your emails the next day and the person still hasn't got back to you but they don't know they're like, no, you know, it's not important. We'll do it on Friday or we'll do it next Monday. So yeah, be very, very clear of what your expectations are in your communication. I think that is is something that can that can help you along a long way. You know, when I write an email, I always ask for, uh, you know, appreciate a reply within the day or or the day after, and uh, and vice versa.
0: Yeah, I think that's brilliant. That clarity of message makes us so much more efficient, both in whatever we're trying to achieve, whether that's in fitness or, or, or in business, Alistair. So a great note for us to wrap up on. And the last thing to ask you is where's the best place for people to connect with you off the back of this. You mentioned the champion minded podcast that'll be linked in the, in the show notes. I'm looking forward to hearing the episode on the, on eagles, but where else can people find you?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm very active on Twitter at Alistair McCall on Instagram, be champion minded. And Facebook, Alistair McCaw page. And like you said there, yeah, the podcasts are available on on iTunes and YouTube and Amazon podcasts and via my website, alistairmccaw.com. And, of course, all books are available on Amazon.
0: Perfect, Alistair. Those will be linked in the show notes below. Thanks again to everyone for listening. If you think you would like to become more champion minded and share this with the people around you. Take a screenshot, pop it in your Instagram story, tag me at call.cambro or ping the link onto a friend to get them involved in the conversation. And I'll be back to speak to you all again very, very soon.